Welcome to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson, a show that brings you regular interviews, tips and tools for building your business online. Well, hello and welcome to the e-commerce podcast with me, your host, Matt Edmondson. Now, whether you are just starting out or whether you know, you're like me, you're a bit sort of long in the tooth and have been around e-commerce for a while. The goal of this podcast is really straightforward to help you grow your e-commerce and digital businesses, regardless of where you are at in that journey. Now, every week I get to talk to amazing people from the world of e-commerce and get to ask them all kinds of amazing questions about what they know and how it's going to help us uh, with our own e-commerce businesses, our own online businesses. Oh, yes, that's what we're going to do. I try and have the conversation that you would have if you got to sit down and have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, if you're English, uh, with uh, our guests and just, you know, have a good good conversation for about 45 minutes. Now, I'm really keen to dig into their story and to learn the principles that can help us start and adapt and grow our own online businesses. So if you are listening to this episode, if you are a regular uh, to the show, if you are watching this live or if you're watching this on YouTube, then I would appreciate it if you would uh, like, comment, you know, do all those amazing things that help us share the podcast and help us keep running and getting out there to more people. So please do that. That would be awesome. I'd really appreciate that. Now, let's just put all that aside. On this week's podcast, uh, on this week's e-commerce podcast, we are going to get into how to beat Amazon at its own game. I think for me, this is probably one of the best titled podcasts we've had for a while. Uh, and I, you know what? I've spoken to our guest already. I think we're going to deliver on that promise. We're going to get into how to beat Amazon at their own game. And to do that, we are going to be talking to Jeremy Bodenhammer. Now, here's his book, right? He's like a proper author. It's got like a whole bunch of pages in there and everything. Uh, and so, and you can see I've scribbled it. You can't see that, but I've scribbled in it. I've made lots of notes. It's a fantastic book. Uh, Jeremy is the co-founder of Shiphawk. Uh, the, he's written this book uh, and he's a leading expert at the intersection of shipping and e-commerce. That's right. Shipping and e-commerce. We are going to get into this. There's no doubt about it. Uh, and, and actually, I think regardless of the size of your business, you're going to get something out of this tonight. You really are. So make sure you grab your notebooks because you're going to want to take a lot of notes. But if you can't, if you're running around the park, if you're driving your car, you'll be pleased to know that all of the notes from today's show will be available as a free download on our website. Just head on over to ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 65 to download them. This is episode, no, not 65 episodes. I'm, I'm five episodes ahead of myself. This is forward slash 60. This is actually the first episode. I've just realized the first episode of season six. We are on season six of the podcast and Jeremy is our first guest. So you want to go to ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 60 and you can down, uh, download those. Okay. So without further ado, let's welcome Jeremy to the show. Let me bring him onto the screen. Jeremy, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Matt? Yeah, good. Thank you. Good. Now, there is quite a bit of a time difference between us. Uh, it's 
at the time of airing or the time of recording, uh, it's quarter past seven in the evening for me, but only quarter past 11 in the afternoon for you, right? That's right. Well, not in the afternoon, in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the morning, yeah. So whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Santa Barbara, California. Okay, okay. And uh, that's very, this is, yeah, uh, you can't get further away from us in the US and still be in the continental United States, right? So it's, um, and, and, and what's Pretty the weather much. like for you? Uh, Santa Barbara is known for always having perfect weather, meaning we get no rain and all sunshine. Yeah, and I'm I'm super envious of that fact. Although we've had a beautiful sunny day here in England, let me tell you, uh, it's it's been a rarity, but it's still really cold. Uh, do you, have you have you guys got snow? Are you warming up, or are you always like perpetually hot in Santa Barbara? No, it's not hot. It's always in the the seventies usually. Um, but this year, I think we're heading into a drought year in California again. So. Very little snow in the mountains, very little rain, um, which means we got next few years, we got some coming for us. Oh, so okay. it usually works. Okay. <laughs> you've, you've, have you always been there? Santa Barbara? Um, I went you... to college here. So I've been here for, I mean, about 20 years now. Oh, okay. Uh, but I'm, I'm sixth generation from Southern California, just not from Santa Barbara. Oh, okay. So you've always lived in that region. Yeah, I was lucky enough to marry a woman that was born here and refuses to leave. So uh, I'm stuck <laughs> in an amazing place. Yeah, I'm feeling your pain, bud. I'm feeling your pain, that's for sure. Um, so uh, college was 20 years ago, right? Um, but here you are 20 years later. You've written this book, Adapt or Die. You've got a company called Shiphawk. Um, and we're going to get into all of the sort of the stuff which you've learned along the way. But how did you get from college 20 years ago to where you are now sort of the quick version what's your your background here yeah the quick version um i had multiple jobs while i was in school one of those jobs was at an executive services firm we did little fedex ups postal service type work nothing crazy and after i graduated i always met i always monitored the local business for sale listings trying to find the small businesses for sale i i learned early on i could find uh, more insight into what was going on in the market by seeing how many dry cleaners were for sale than by reading the Wall Street Journal each morning. <laughs> and that's quite so insightful. I noticed. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. So long story short, I, I noticed this pack and ship store come up for sale. Think about it like a UPS store, mailboxes, etc. Type place. And then the listing disappeared. Came up, disappeared. After this happened four or five times, I I picked up the phone, called the broker, and I just said, "What's going on?" Turns out this little business had fallen out of escrow with five consecutive buyers. So I looked at the I looked at the numbers and yeah, it was the business was essentially failing. I, I understood what was going on now, mm -hmm. uh, but I saw the opportunity in in the place I had worked in in Montecito. I had helped the owner double the size of the business in a short amount of time. Thought I could do something similar there. So I literally begged, borrowed, and stole. I mean, I was a college student with a bunch of student debt and all that stuff maxed out my credit card, got every dollar I could put it in an envelope, walked into the office and set it in this guy's hand. And I and he looks at the envelope, he looks at me, he goes, I assume this is your first offer. And I said, as of right now, that's my only offer. And I turned around and I walked out. So super risky. Wow. Uh, yeah. But I ended up successfully <laughs> buying myself a failing business. Uh, put, <laughs> that's I was, such a great put, phrase. <laughs> I was putting my wife through grad school, and so I couldn't quit my day job. Uh, but the day she graduated, I quit. I went to work in this little store, and um, you know, this guy walks into the store with this life-size wooden rocking horse. I mean, you and I could both fit on this thing. It was huge, six feet tall, seven feet long. 
And I learned some hard lessons about freight and brokers and, and how the whole shipping game worked through this. Um, ended up successfully shipping that horse and it turned into more and more and more jobs until 2011 rolls around and my phone is literally ringing off the hook with customers asking me one question, which is what is the shipping cost? Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing all this move to e-commerce, all this stuff going online, and nobody knows really what the cost of distribution is going to be. And so I figured I had two options. I could try to scale this little brick and mortar business, which sounded like a terrible idea. I mean, you can tell I already <laughs> lost all my hair. Uh, or I could try to solve the problem with with software. And that's the path I, I opted for. So I put the business up for sale and uh, started Shiphawk. And with Shiphawk, wow. we have... Uh, shipping software for scaling e-commerce companies. And uh, that's really our focus today. Wow. So, I mean, going back, did you did you always want to run your own business? I mean, you were in college and you thought, you know what, I'm going to run my own business. Is this why you were reading, you know, the, the for sale ads in the newspaper? Absolutely. I started my first company when I was 12. Um, you know, helping my parents pay the bills. We, we didn't have much money. So uh, that, that, that money went directly into utility payments and food for the table, that type of thing. Um, and then just paid my way through school from there. Uh, one thing after the next. So. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So you've always had this sort of entrepreneurial flair. And when you got into, you know, I can see, I can, I have visions of you wrap, trying to wrap, you know, the six foot rocking horse, which I just, I, I have no no desire to ever do. I've got to be honest. Um, and I, and I, I sort of see you going from there. When you're thinking about Shiphawk, um, which I think is one of the coolest software names I've heard, by the way, um, when I when I see you doing that, were, were you were you experienced with software or did you just kind of think that ah, we can make this work somehow? Somebody knows how to write this, surely. Yeah, absolutely not. I knew nothing about software. It's <laughs> it's not really my uh, it's not really in my nature to think about the things that I don't know or don't understand. Uh, I actually sold my business to my co- the guy that would become my co founder, and he okay. fortunately for me was a software pro and uh, much smarter than I am. So he took the technical side of the business, and I took more of the sales and operational side at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's how we got it. We got it started. So this was 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. Yeah, we really started it officially. I mean, I was in my garage with those giant $11 Home Depot whiteboards, you know, like trying to draw up what we wanted to build. But we really started the company in 2012, at the end of 2012. Okay. And so, what, nine years, we're here, we are nine years later almost for you. Um, And you've obviously seen the world change a lot during those nine years. Um, I, I mean, especially in freight and shipping, right? I mean, it must have changed an awful lot over those nine years. Would that be a fair? Absolutely. The 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 perspective of the the shipper, the seller, the the e-commerce merchant has changed radically. Mm. Uh, I mean, shipping was a complete back office uh, problem, right? It was never a key differentiator for anyone until Amazon came in the scene. And to tell you, I mean, we think about Amazon as, to a large degree, still this like rapidly expanding startup. But Amazon IPO'd the year I graduated from high school. I mean, they've been at this for a long time and and really making distribution a key differentiator of their brand. And Mm. um, so they've created that wave that everyone else is now being forced to ride. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I was was talking to some guys about um, e-commerce in Australia. Uh, and New Zealand, you know, there's the, the, sort of the markets over there. And 
It was interesting to note that in the countries that had an absence of Amazon, the distribution setup of the of the countries was very different, say, to the UK. And one of the things that I, I think I've noticed in the UK over recent years is since Amazon has come and, and done what it's done, all the other shipping companies have had to really up their game. Do you know what I mean? And there's there's more of them that, that have sort of come out of the woodwork and they've all sort of innovated in this space. So now in the UK, next day shipping is just a given that it's going to happen, do you know what I mean, regardless of where you go and who you use. Whereas I don't see that um, in New Zealand, for example. Australia, I mean, Amazon has recently gone into Australia. So I'm kind of curious to see what happens to their fulfillment industry over the next five years as Amazon does what Amazon does in that country. Yeah, Amazon's really the, uh, they're the purveyor of the drug, but we're the problem, right? It's you and me. We're the ones that are buying the stuff and saying we have to have it now, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't get my pimple cream or my razors right now, like the world's going to end. And so we're really driving that immediacy um, in the distribution. Um, if the buyers would change their expectations, with some of the brands have tried to do, I mean, Amazon has the the Amazon day, they try to get you to opt into so you get your deliveries on the same day, so they can mm -hmm. aggregate your orders, that type of thing. Um, it would change things. But at the moment, the buyers are driving that that charge. And do you think that's going to change anytime soon? Or do you think that's going to, we're going to carry on demanding faster and faster shipping? Yeah, I mean, from uh, an environmental and human perspective, I I say, unfortunately, no. Uh, from a business perspective, I think it's hard to argue. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's costly, but the the impact is evident. I mean, yeah. we've never seen capital markets support a company like Amazon, right? Mm -hmm. Year after year after year of losses to build this massive network. And we've seen the same thing in China with Alibaba and JD and um, Walmart back in the more legacy way they built their supply chain to feed their stores and how how much they perfected that. I mean, it's a strategy that works. It works if that is our end goal is get my stuff now. It's successful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so what are some of the, I mean, what are some of the key things that you've noticed over the last nine years and, you know, since doing Shiphawk uh, for not just necessarily with Amazon, we all know, I guess, Amazon's story, but for the small e-commerce business owner, what are some of the things that have really changed there? Uh, technology has changed. Um, the availability of uh, sales uh, technology. I mean, you and I could start a store on Shopify today and yeah. start selling products, even if we didn't have products. Mm -hmm. We could drop ship and sell someone else's products, right? So the availability mm -hmm. for anyone to be this solopreneur, this instant business owner, um, the marketing software. I mean, one of my buddies, I write about his story in the book. Um, his, his name is Michael Perry. He he started a company called Kit where you could you with text messaging, you could run ads on Facebook and Instagram and Shopify ended up buying them because what they found out was all their, their early adopters, the the uh, new customers they would get would make sales right away, right away if they were using this little bot that he, he had oh, well. built to uh, mm -hmm. automate advertising, right? I mean, the, the barrier to entry is so low now that yeah. anybody can do it. And so it's really about what makes you unique, right? Because mm -hmm. any of us can go sell the same thing as everyone else, the same thing that Amazon has, the same thing that Walmart has access to, right? That marketplace environment has really flattened the access. So what else is there that makes you unique? And I think that we're starting to see those businesses rise in a significant way. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's spot on. It's a really interesting differentiator now, isn't it? That, and um, you talk about being Amazon at their own game. This is something that Amazon can't do. 
they can ship faster than you, but they can't be you on the website. They can't bring that authenticity. They can't bring that unique selling proposition that only you could bring, right? Absolutely. In the book, I call I, I call it authenticity. Um, and just not just being unique, but proclaiming it from the mountaintops, right? Like getting out there and telling your customers and your prospects, even though you're going to piss off some of them, like saying, this is what mm-hmm. we stand for. There was, um, I think it was Seth Godin, someone years ago did a, um, had a, a speech that they were giving. And I got to see the presentation one time. And he was talking about how small or how big the planet is and how connected it is. So you can have these ecosystems that are so small, but you can build a huge business in it. Yeah. And one of his examples was this guy that did backyard chicken farming. And he had a podcast for just backyard chicken farmers. And that even at the time, and this was a long time ago, Yeah, that that business, that market was so huge, even though you and I think about that as like probably a pretty tiny market. Because mm-hmm. everything's so connected. So it, by being authentic, you will find your customers and you will serve yeah. them in a way that the Amazons of the world, it's impossible for them to do. Yeah, that's very, very true. That's very, very true. So you mentioned that in the book. I mean, you mentioned quite a lot of things in the book. What what caused you to, because uh, I mean, you talk in the book about the pandemic. So it's a fairly new book, um, right? You recently published book. What What made you decide to write a book? Because you know, that's a, that's, that's baptism by fire right there, isn't it? I mean, that's not an easy task to do. Well, there's two answers to your question. I mean, the the first question is the pandemic hit and all of a sudden I didn't have to get on an airplane anymore. Right? <laughs> okay. uh, like I had time in my calendar that was already blocked out and I could fill it with whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. And the, the other answer and the, the driver to to doing the book is that if we look at the prospects that my sales team speaks to. If we look at the the e-commerce merchants, the people we're trying to help, right? These merchants, these uh, these uh, retailers, manufacturers, and distributors. Nine out of ten of them, when they engage with our sales reps, have have no operational goals in place or metrics to measure them by. Mm. And if you think about this, I'm not sure you can imagine a sales org without a, a, a sales pipeline and very specific metrics about stages of customers and how they move through there and when you're, you know, what your revenue is going to be by those efforts. Um, and you walk into a bookstore and you see all these sales and marketing books, but no back of the house books. There's hardly any operations books. And so meanwhile, the industry giants like Amazon and, and, and others, all their, their, um, their competitors and their friends to a certain degree are making distribution a key differentiator and they are extinguishing entire segments of, of business, not just yeah. individual businesses and mom and pops and, you know, but I mean, knocking off products and just taking whole industries out. And so I realized that what was missing was education mm-hmm. and there's just information that needs to be out there. And I, I, and I don't see myself as the spreader of this gospel as much as I hope that I'm the catalyst to, everybody's spreading this because I think the independent merchant is going to benefit by being just as well equipped on the operations side as they will on the sales and marketing side. Yeah, no, that's really good. That's really, I mean, one of the things you mentioned in the book, which I, I thought was so um, very true and, uh, and, and quite profound, you talk about how um, the, the problem you have as an independent retailer is if you have something that works if you manufacture a product that's good or and your website starts to take off you become a victim of your own success because the big guys are going to see this and they're going to uh rip it off or they're going to you know do their own version of it or they they're going to try and take that market as soon as you create something that's successful they are going to take that 
market because they want that slice of the pie. Um, and and you talked about, uh, I can't remember the, the company example you gave, but there was an example that the chap said, basically, I've got to reinvent the wheel almost every year just to stay on, on top yeah. because they come after you. Yeah, and there's different ways they do it. That's I think the story you're referencing is Rain Design, and Rain Design makes uh, these uh, laptop stands, mm-hmm. um, and they started with this iDesk. This this back when the iMac was a little larger, they made this ergonomic desk for the iMac. It took off, and then they made this laptop stand. And until I started researching it, I didn't even realize I've got like dozens of these things. They are all over our office. We've got, I mean, tons of them, and they were doing so well. Amazon just came in and said, "Hey, we'll do it." They knocked it off under the Amazon basics label and um, drop the price. I think the price was dropped almost in half. And what are you going to do? Your sales fall. I tell another story in the book about Birkenstock. So Amazon's not going to manufacture Birkenstocks, but they got, they acquired a bunch of Birkenstock inventory and were depressing prices outside the bounds of what Birkenstock wanted to do. And Birkenstock lost entire, entire control of, of their supply chain and distribution of that product by that, by that, uh, that move. Where you look at uh, a story I don't tell in the book, Allbirds. Mm. I mean, Allbirds is famous for their wool runner now. The entire motivation of starting the business was to have an environmentally friendly product, right? This 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 sneaker that's not made out of plastics and you know petroleum products, but made that made out of wool. And you go to Amazon, type in wool runner, and you'll see these knockoffs. And I thought the uh, the founders of Allbirds did a, pulled a just genius move. They wrote an open letter to Amazon and to Bezos and said, hey, copy us. We will introduce you to our manufacturers. We will give you all our tech and everything. But if you're going to copy us, copy our approach to sustainability at the same time. Don't make a shoddy product <laughs> and say it's the same thing. Yeah. And so all amazing. this stuff is converging here, right? But yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a huge risk and you're, you're, you're right. Their success is can be a detriment depending on where you're selling and who has access to those markets if you're not controlling them other ways, like through mm. an authentic relationship. Yeah, and you mentioned that in the book, right? And, and I, I've used this phrase before, um, this idea of, uh, you know, with my e-commerce websites, I, I refer to myself often as a digital David, you know, the story of David and Goliath, the small guy taking on the big guys of Amazon and you know, we've got stories of we've I think if you've been in e-commerce for a little while, you've all got stories of where you've been burned by Amazon or some of the bigger companies, you know, where they just railroad you because they can and they genuinely don't care. And so this whole idea of, you know, David taking on Goliath, the digital Davids, um, I think it's a I think it's a real interesting problem that we now face, you know, that there are there are very real threats in terms of these giants that we need to be aware of, but I think they, they are battles that we can win. And you talk, you've mentioned it a couple of times, you talked about it in the book, right? So you've talked about authenticity, but what does authenticity look like to you, right? How does, how, what, if I'm, if I'm a, a small retail guy, I hear words like authenticity, but how do I, what does that mean practically? Does that make sense? It does. Um, and I can give you examples. I think first, before I do that, I think it's important to to define the digital date or the digital Goliaths in this example to mm-hmm. really emphasize what makes the digital Davids able to compete. In the book, I call these giants the five APIs of the apocalypse. And they're these five <laughs> global commerce APIs, right? They're Amazon, Walmart, Alibaba, JD, and Shopify. Mm-hmm. Shopify is a little unique. We can talk about that if you want. But they aren't trying to corner the market. They're trying to become the market. 
Yeah. They want everybody on their infrastructure. They run closed ecosystems. Um, and so the downside to that is if you don't participate, you're locked out. And if you do participate, their effort is to extinguish you to a large degree, right? To, to yeah. Not because they have anything against you. It's just they want that business. Yeah. It makes sense. So when you think about the digital Davids, like who is successfully competing against those? Uh, one of my, I have a couple of favorite stories to tell. One is a company in San Francisco. Uh, a startup that was an early Shiphawk customer, a Grove Collaborative. And they make eco-friendly home products, cleaning products. They have a makeup line now. All this this natural, eco-friendly, um, good-for-the-earth uh, product line. And the truth is that they really, if you look at from the outside, they're really competing head-to-head with Amazon, right? Because Amazon's okay. really the master and, and Walmart and those guys of the commodity sale, right? I can get Windex anywhere. So mm-hmm. they've got Myers, you know, Myers soaps versus, you know, whatever non Myers brand or non, you know, natural brand. But what they've done is, number one, they took a strategic perspective on their supply chain. So instead of building products, packaging everything for a shelf, they built it for shipping. So they started realizing efficiencies that their competitors couldn't. They started internal initiatives. Their current One of their current initiatives that I love is their Beyond Plastic campaign where they're saying that there's not going to be any plastic in their supply chain by 2025. You think about that. That's not that far from now to have some plastic completely out. Um, And so what happens is those buyers end up building a relationship with that brand. Like I'm not going to go buy my, my, we, that's the same products we use here at the house, right? My wife isn't going to let us bring in the old stuff. Um, And so we're not going to buy that somewhere else. Grove's the one leading that charge. We give them credit for that. Mm-hmm. Another example that I love is Parker Clay. Uh, Parker Clay makes leather, primarily leather handbags. They make leather products. Um, they have them for men and women. Uh, most of their their sales are like women's handbags, travel bags, that type of thing. Really nice, high quality, luxury. Um, the founders were missionaries in Ethiopia and and realized that most of the leather for the um, the high end bag market, you're talking Gucci, Louis Vuitton, all these high end bags, was coming out of Ethiopia. These guys are shipping containers of this stuff to Italy. And wow. everyone in Ethiopia, these are farmers. And at the same time, why were they there as missionaries? Because there's a huge base of, of women that are vulnerable there, um, a lot of orphans, because there's not jobs for those women. So they put two and two together and said, hey, well, what if we start a manufacturing facility here in Ethiopia of all places? And they are now one of the largest, the largest employers in the country. Um, and they said, what if we brought these women in, gave them jobs, we trained them to do this work, we keep this leather here that is either going to be discarded or shipped far away. So we're actually doing something good for the earth. And then we make this our mission and we tell everyone this is why we're doing it. So when you buy a handbag from us, even though I can yeah. buy a bag that looks almost identical on Amazon, if I buy it from Parker Clay, I'm actually giving somebody in Ethiopia a job who otherwise would be on the street, mm-hmm. right? Starving, whose kids would be in an orphanage. I mean, terrible situations. And they're changing the world through that. Who's going to buy bags from someone else after hearing that story? Yeah, And so Amazon, I mean, these guys cannot compete there. And I see time and time again, I mean, we have dozens and dozens of customers in this category, who meaning the ones that really get out there and say, this is why we're different. That's really powerful, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, with Parker Clay um, and the Grove Collab thing, that's super powerful because what I hear you saying, their authenticity is based around around their mission, around finding people with the same value set that they they've got right we're doing this we're eco we're good for the earth and that's what we do and if you like it great if you don't go buy from amazon it's that kind of attitude isn't it and the same with um 
for the guys in Ethiopia. I think that's quite magical, really. Um, really quite magical. And 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 in terms of, um, I, I remember reading about the Grove Collab project in your in your book. They're quite a new company as well, and they've they've grown quite rapidly from what I remember. Is that right? Oh yeah, they're huge now, and it's been very rapid. Uh, you can look up their uh, their funding history online, but I, the last their last funding round, they were, I think they were worth multiple billions, um, and they were little guys like us when when they started. Yeah. So those guys have just they've done a great job. That the that the process works. Yeah, that focus on distribution efficiencies and focus on authenticity in the relationship with the customer it works in the market today. So, I mean, I can understand from an authenticity point of view that the whole value sort of thing, but what sort of things, so you talk about distribution efficiencies. What, what do you mean by that? How can, how can, I guess, how can we learn from that? Yeah, so in the book, I mean, the warehouse is so big these days that it's an entire industry in, a, in and of itself. Mm. Um, like if you just think about a modern warehouse, like a, a stat that I like to share, cause it's just so shocking. Like if you and I started a, a, a company in our garage and we're shipping onesie twosies out of our garage and we, we pick up steam and we're like, okay, now we're shipping hundreds or thousands. We're like, Hey, we got to get a warehouse. Mm-hmm. We go down the street, we get, you know, five, 10,000 square feet. It seems big at the time, but we quickly fill it. You up, upgrade, upgrade, upgrade. How many upgrades into you're spending like millions of dollars on a warehouse? I, I can, I can connect those dots. Amazon spends north of $200 million on each new smart DC they open up. Like the technology that they are employing, like we will never be able to compete in that league, right? Mm -hmm. Alibaba in 2019 on singles day, they changed singles day this year. So it's not like a week now or it's multiple Mm -hmm. days. They shipped a billion packages in a single day. Oh, like the, the, this, the, the, the difference between this Goliath and this David is so huge. Yeah. So in the book, I break the the distribution side down into six simple components, right? Okay. Just trying to really make it accessible uh, to the to the reader. So we got packing, shipping, um, we've got operations workers, warehousing, uh, data and analytics, and robotics. Those are the six sections. Okay. And my suggestion when we're talking about how to really tackle these things is start small. Don't try to boil the ocean. Don't try to do everything at once, right? And whether starting small means starting by uh, analyzing your tariffs, uh, your shipping tariffs, your contracts with your carriers, getting some software to use those intelligently, whether it means something like being smarter about your packaging. 40% or sorry, the average order is put in a box that is 40% too big for its contents. That 40% puts 25 million truckloads of goods on U.S. roads each year. Wow. You want to think about that from a, a, a climate change perspective. Yeah, I mean, it that's is mental. radical. Yeah. So simply saying, hey, I'm going to buy a box making machine. I'm going to buy some packing software to make sure that I'm using the right box, right? Or we go all the way over to the data and analytics side. I'm going to set some supply chain goals, and I'm going to start measuring simple things. Right. But starting small in each of these categories can have profound results. Um, And if you just do one at a time, you can conquer all six and you can really make some progress for a a business that otherwise would be at risk. Wow. So those six areas, packaging, shipping, operations, warehouse, data and robotics. Yeah. Operations workers. That's that's actually one of my favorite to talk about since we we like to treat people in the in the warehouse so poorly. 
Okay, well let's let, let's dip, let's dive into that one then. Uh, so what? When I mean, I, I kind of have I have instantly in my head what you're talking about about treating operations workers so poorly. Um, it's in a, in essence unskilled work, and you and especially around Christmas, you normally see people that work for Amazon on TV complaining about the working conditions. You know, working for Amazon, it's that kind of thing. So, what do you mean when you say we treat them poorly, and ha- and what can we do there maybe to help ourselves? Yeah, so there's there's so much to talk about here. So, uh, a lot of the work in the warehouse is terrible. It's hard. It's not fun. It's repetitive, leads to a lot of injuries. Um, one of my buddies runs um, a robotics uh, company called uh, Plus One Robotics. And Eric, the CEO there, he likes to, he has a hashtag robot or people, uh, robots work, people rule, right? Like okay. we want robots to do the hard work. What do mm-hmm. we want with people? The problem with people is number one, 65% of operating budgets. I'm going to hit you with a bunch of numbers here. I apologize. It'll all make sense. So 65% of these operating budgets are labor related. If we go ask warehouse managers what their top problem is, in a recent survey, over 50% said labor scarcity. They can't get enough people to do the job that that robots can't do, right? Last, the most current data I have shows that the inventory in your average warehouse, only 43% can be handled robotically. So 57% of the inventory has to have a human. They can't Mm -hmm. find the humans. Then there was another study that showed that 20% of the workforce that is in the warehouse is actively disengaged, and half of it says they're just doing enough to get to get by. We pay these people pre-COVID. You know, COVID, we had this moment where we called them heroes. It was amazing for a second. We saw rate, you know, hourly rates shoot up. But pre-COVID, we paid them poorly, minimum wage or as close to it as we could. We tried to shave yeah. every penny off their work. Meanwhile, in the front of the house, we've got awards. Best places to work, right? These tech companies, whoever's got the, you know, the engineering mm-hmm. job or the cushy marketing job, like they've got ping pong tables and, you know, uh, snack rooms. And in the in the warehouse, it's just a different environment. And so I really feel uh, like it's important to advocate for the warehouse workers and to say, hey, not only do we need to invest in these people in in terms of pay and and benefits, it will reduce turnover, it will keep them there longer, but we really need to invest in training. Because the more automation that we put into these warehouses, the more important the few people we have are going to be. Mm -hmm. And if we can invest in their training and make sure they keep up with the evolution of the business, the business will outperform those who haven't done it. Okay. So, um, so what happens, I mean, what happens if you've got, I'm just thinking of my warehouse, for example, you know, where we distribute from, we don't actually have any robots picking and packing or doing that sort of stuff. I'm way down the packing order, do you know what I mean, before I start spending crazy money on robots. Um, how would I invest in my people, you know, in terms of, uh, yes, in, in terms of pay, but in terms of what sort of training could I do or what sort of things could I do to help those guys? Yeah. So first I would ask back, like, do you offer any training today? Right? So if you think about your business and where you're trying to take your business, are those operations workers included in that plan? Right? Mm. Are you training them to be prepared for the next generation? You're probably having, you probably have meetings with those on the sales and marketing side, or if you have engineering on the engineering side saying, Hey, this is where we want to get to. Is our is operations even looped into those discussions? Have we studied the impact of that growth on the back of the house on the distribution one what it's going to do to your costs um, and what your competitors are going to do there and how those few people that are there are going to have to be able to handle that that influx of, of mm. business most most operations will say no 
They haven't. It's mm. just whatever they produce, we're going to push it over there and you've got to figure out how to handle it. They don't get paid well. They don't really like it. It's hard work. So they say peace out and go get another job and bounce from one warehouse to another to another. Yeah, that's really fascinating because, I mean, listening to you talk, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know what? Uh, the first half of any e-commerce journey is getting your prospective client to the website to buy the product. That's goal number one. Goal number two is then getting the product in the hand of that person, isn't it? And so, and this is a bit that no one ever talks about. Everybody talks about Facebook ads and, you know, Google ads and all these sorts of things. But it's the it's the bit after the, the ad to cot. Do you know what I mean? And I've paid for my order. Um, and what I guess what the area that you're hitting really sweetly with this whole conversation about distribution is that second half of e-commerce. Um, that whole buyer's journey. That's really, really good. I mean, it's in one of the things that we we realized quite early on as our business was growing was that the 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 guys and the gals in the warehouse, um, they more than anybody else recognized uh, customer names. So when you started to have a bunch of repeat customers, they they started to recognize them. And so we came up with this concept called smocks. Um, and smocks just stood for sexy moments of customer service. It was, you know, some bizarre, I don't know why we came, but anyway, we had, we called them smocks. And we just said to the guys in the warehouse, listen, um, if it costs under a certain amount of money, you never need to get my permission, just go ahead and do it. You know, we kind of took a leaf, I think, out of um, Zappos. I read his book and sort of, you know, yep. you get you give people a sort of an autonomy on, on money. And they started doing things like, um, buying chocolates or, you know, Starbucks gift cards or, or all kinds of things and, and started writing handwritten notes to the customers saying, listen, I pick and pack your order. I see you've ordered from us a few times. Thanks. We're a family business. Really appreciate you being a part of what we're doing kind of thing. And here's a, you know, a gift from us. And, um, and the feedback from that was quite extraordinary from the customers, but I saw the change it made in the guys in the warehouse because they felt like they were contributing. Yep. And it, so you, it, it's a win on both sides. It's a win absolutely with the customers that's quantifiable. And it's also quantifiable on the operation side. We just don't usually take the time to quantify it because turnover, mm. workers comp, insurance and injuries, all the things that go along with doing it the other way also come at a cost. And all we do historically, what we've done is say, hey, we just need to get the lowest cost possible on an hourly rate. Right. Mm. And we don't look at this ballooning cost over here. And as labor is more scarce, and the job becomes more and more demanding, and it has to work side by side with robots, you know, robots are becoming the managers there, they're the ones dictating in these high volume operations, you know, the metrics that the human has to work by. Yeah, getting that right is just it's going to be more critical every day. So wow. I, I, did you say did you share any uh, or keep any data on the success on the sales side of that, that initiative? Uh, no, in hindsight, we totally should have done. Um, but we, yeah, we were just, we were young to the whole thing. We never measured anything. We were just, let us just have a go and see what happens. And if people started complaining, we switched it off. You know, that was basically our motto. We, um, one of the, one of, one of the, the stories I think that we're most known for is we swapped out, um, you know, the plastic bubbles that go in the boxes because the boxes are 40% bigger than the products that they, you know, and, I, yep. and I'm going to take that on board tomorrow, let me tell you. Um, but it's interesting, what we did, we swapped that out and, and we were like, you know, what what's our company values? What We like uh, sustainability, we like eco, we like, but we like having a bit of fun and we like just, you know, doing things a little bit differently. We swapped out the plastic bubbles for popcorn and um, we just, I went and bought, 
a stack load of popcorn machines. They're in the warehouse, constantly churning. Our warehouse smells of fresh cooked popcorn every day. Uh, we tried loads of different popcorn types to try and figure out what the best one was. And it was, from a packaging point of view, it, it kind of met all of our criteria straight away, you know. And um, I, I love what you're talking about because innovation here, I think, is probably... It's one of those things that I can't give you any numbers on, but if you were to say to me what's been the biggest thing that has brought customers back to buy from you a second time, I would say it's something simple as using popcorn rather than plastic bubbles. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great example. I've never heard that before. I love it. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it, how this whole packaging thing and shipping thing, it makes a, a massive difference. It makes a huge difference to your organization and getting it right. So let me go back, Jeremy, you talked about robotics and this intrigues me because like, and I'm, I'm being totally selfish here. I'm just thinking from my point of view, um, we have a warehouse, uh, we ship out thousands of products from the warehouse. Everything goes by people picking and packing. You know, we have people walking around, they pick and pack <clears throat> the, you know, it was a revolution to us when we introduced scanners, you know, when you actually picked and packed the order. That was amazing. That saved us thousands of pounds uh, just because we weren't sending wrong orders out. Every order was now correct because we scanned barcodes. Genius. And I know you talk about that in the book as well. Um, but I kind of sit here and I think robotics, if I'm honest with you, I've never thought about it for my warehouse because one, I don't think I'm too, I don't think I'm big enough. And two, I think that is going to be crazy, crazy expensive. So at what point should I start to think about, I mean, you've mentioned it in these six areas, at what point should I start to think about robotics? Yeah, so my perspective on this, as with everything in, in supply chain, is start small. And I love that you gave the example of the scanner, because that would be one of the first places I'd say to start. And mm -hmm. then how effectively is your scanning working with your software? Because you can add scanning and still have to require multiple scans or scans and data entry to make it work. And so if you mm -hmm. can get it down, so it's just scan, scan, print, you know, you, you put the music on and do a little dance to it. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you can add dimensioners, conveyors, right? And then you can slowly start building to it. Um, I don't think that there's... The way robotics are accessed today, which the vast majority, it's these big bulk upfront cash purchases. Um, there are some companies that are offering robots as a service. There are some work at just doing more uh, simple utilization. So just transporting goods throughout the warehouse, things like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you go all in, I mean, it's, there's a, it's a big cash outlay. Um, other ways people can access robots is working with 3PLs. So if some of your stuff can be distributed by a third party that utilizes robots because they have a huge warehouse or multiple warehouses, mm -hmm. you can get the access of that efficiency and that throughput without having to put all that money out to begin with. Okay. But there is a point where it still makes sense. Um, Eric in the book uh, from Plus One talks a lot about how even the cost of the robots isn't really the barrier, but getting the integrations partners to help get it set up and and working with your other systems, yeah. uh, the systems integrators, and how that's a big barrier entry because the big, what he calls the big six, which includes FedEx and UPS, uh, those guys wrap up the best of class guys mm -hmm. um, and gals because it's just, there's so much work in it. Everybody is moving to as much automation as possible. Yeah. So high level, I don't think everything I just said was super helpful other than start small. Yeah. Hardware first. A scanner. <laughs> scanner, yeah. Box yeah, yeah. making machines, great. You yeah. know, those things are awesome. A box dimensioning machine. 
Yeah, so there's a dimensioner which will just do like a scan of the box so that you don't have to someone have someone manually measure it. We at Shiphawk we do that with software. So we we tell the picker which box to use in advance and then auto calculate packed weights and dims. So if you don't do that, you can use a dimensioner. Or a third option is a box making machine. So you can spit the order to this machine. Like Pack Size is the company I reference in the book. There's a bunch of companies that make these things. It mm-hmm. will you buy the cardboard from them. So you don't have to put a big cash outlay for the machine. You just obligate yourself to buying the cardboard yeah. and it will make perfect size box for each order. Not one that's too big or standard or anything. Holy cow. That's clever technology. That's yeah. clever. I like that. What are some of the, um, what are some of the surprising innovations that you have seen uh, in this whole area over recent months? So you kind of look at that and go, that is really clever. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure the stuff that excites me would be um, <laughs> things that excite the listeners. I mean, one of the coolest ones I saw that that really woke me up recently was a uh, software that reduced dwell time for inbound freight because you got these guys bringing all your freight and they sit there and have to wait till they can get a dock and wait till they unload. Mm-hmm. And so just software that was automating that. Um, I think there's been more and more um, uh, progress in visibility, just knowing where orders are, right? Less just kind of um, gooey kind of uh front end like um splash page tracking pages and real data is like this is where your shipment is and i'm going to update the customer yeah um i think we're moving to a world where everyone is going to have inventory in sourced and outsourced it's going to be closer to where we predict the final destination is going to be and the customer is going to have real-time updates as to how the movement of that freight yeah. And so those, those are the things that, that excite me more than most because they also reduce workload for us uh, with the work we're doing to help our customers. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's, like I say, the whole conversation just absolutely fascinates me. Um, and I feel like we could talk about this for a really long time. But, but, but what I do want to do is, is just circle back to your five APIs of the apocalypse, one of which you said was Shopify, which really intrigued me. Um, because that the others I can understand, but Shopify, I was kind of like, well, hang on a minute. Why, why is that there? So can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah. So Shopify is, is one of the APIs because truthfully they are that powerful and they have the infrastructure to support that power. Okay. Uh, they have enormous, um, uh, volume of customers and orders. Uh, recently they bought six river systems last year. Um, they're expanding their fulfillment network to have a third party, you know, alternative to FBA and other sources like that. Um, but Shopify is different than the other four of the big five, because they are actually out to empower the independent merchant They're They are authentic in that relationship with the customer, you know, Toby's uh, red button, you know, push the button, get your store mm-hmm. um, and empowering these entrepreneurs to start that. And I think Shopify has done a really good job in the book. I, I think I call them the independent merchants only hope because yeah. we need third parties to be that powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, we need third parties that don't have closed ecosystems to remain open for everybody else. And one could argue that Shopify is still closed, but um, to them, uh, but I don't see it that way. I think you can sell in multiple marketplaces. You can have a direct relationship with your customer thanks to Shopify. You could keep unique items on your site that you don't sell on the marketplaces and drive 
relationships back that way and have a really good strategy. And if we didn't have, you know, brands like them and big commerce and square, I, I would be even more fearful of the the other big five members. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, it's, a, it's a really interesting viewpoint. I mean, Shopify is such a brilliant concept and a brilliant idea, and it makes everything super accessible. Um, but I, I, it's intriguing to me that they're going down a route of being able to want or wanting to compete with FBA, for example, you know, for the fulfillment by Amazon. And, um, and do you think they're going to pull that off? Do you think they're going to be able to do that well? Um, I mean, that's as much to do with Amazon and how they evolve that program as as it is with Shopify and how they evolve theirs. Um, I've seen a lot of progress in the uh, the startup world with these uh, dynamic uh, warehousing uh, software companies like Flowspace and Stored and Flex out of Seattle, um, Deliver, who's offering uh, Amazon-like uh, delivery times from their fulfillment warehouses. Um, and connections to the marketplaces. Um, Amazon has a lot of rules and they're pushing as their merchants get bigger, pushing for higher volume limits and certain times of year prices spike and it can be expensive for certain product types. So Mm -hmm. there are definitely holes in the market where like math is not on the side of someone trying to make all their money in distribution uh, if if you're Amazon, right? Because your money's coming from the marketplace, the ads, AWS, yeah. all that stuff. They need that. They need that distribution to solidify the rest of the business. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a big opportunity for the the independents, the third parties, and Shopify. I don't know whether Shopify will pull it off. I think the more open it is to people, no matter where they're selling, the better chances it has. Wow, wow. And do you think? I mean, I'm I'm sitting here, and I'm uh, I. You won't know this, but we distribute worldwide from our warehouse in the UK, right? And we have issues at the moment with, say, New Zealand and Australia. So we're now having conversations with, um, you call them 3PLs, right? The, the, the fulfillment partners that we could potentially use in New Zealand and Australia to ship products uh, there. We, I, I would guess probably 20, 30% of our orders go to the States, and they're usually at someone's door within under a week. Um, <clears throat> But if I was going to, st- and I'm I'm asking this on behalf of all the UK guys, I suppose, thinking about exporting to places like the States. What what would your advice be, I guess, in terms of if I'm going to venture into um, finding a fulfillment partner, the three PLs, what are some of the things that I need to think about and, and, and look at if I was going to do that, say, in the States? It doesn't matter where I'm going to do it. But do you know what I mean? What are some of the things that I need to think about in that whole area? Yeah, it's funny you asked that. We just wrote our first adapter die workbook, and it is how to select a 3PL. So <laughs> if any of your listeners want the workbook, just have them uh, at the end. We can give the contact information, and I'll send it to them. Uh, but this is the, the – if we want to look at the simplest way to think about it, um, you have to look at the third-party relationship exactly like you look at your internal distribution. I would suggest having the same metrics, the same standards, the same SLAs. So I ex- mm-hmm. if I expect an order to be processed in a certain amount of time internally, I need to expect that externally. I have a, um, a bad habit that you could say in some cases is a good habit. When we sign a new customer, a lot of times I'll go to their website or their channels and I'll order the same product from different places and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, through the channels where they make the least amount of money, Amazon, right, per order, not talking an aggregate, 
mm-hmm. they get the best performance. I'll order, wow. like I ordered from one of our customers a shirt on Amazon. It was, I got consistent communication. I got the shirt in two days mm-hmm. through their third party work that came out of like the Midwest or it took over a week. Communication was terrible. Um, and that can be handled with the agreement with PL and in the selection of the 3PL, making sure you're working with someone that can meet those standards. So if you just document, these are my expectations internally, and mm-hmm. you shop that when you're selecting your partner, I think you're going to get results that are that are scalable, and it's good for you and for that 3PL partner. Well, that's really great advice. And so you've got a workbook. <laughs> I, I, that, that's, I would... I would class that as perfect timing, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> it was. No one's yeah. ever asked that before. It literally was just done. So. Brilliant. Listen, uh, I, I really appreciate you being with us. And um, as I said, I could go uh, all day and I would, I'd encourage viewers or listeners, um, if you haven't done so already, do grab this book. If you are doing any kind of distribution, if you're on e-commerce, Adapt or Die, um, that Jeremy's written is a fantastic book. You've got a lot of fab reviews on Amazon. Ironically, we're talking about Amazon. Um, you've got some great reviews on your book uh, on that platform. Uh, so it's a great book. I mean, you must be stoked with it. Eh? You must be really proud of what you've done there because I, I, I thought good on you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I love it. And my boys love that there's a dinosaur on the cover. So uh, <laughs> it's a win for everybody. Did they choose the cover? No, no, my my publisher said don't when they sent me the cover art, they said don't show these to anybody. Just tell us what you think. And I'm sure okay. there's some reason behind that. So I didn't show it to anybody, but I'm the father of three boys, so of course I picked the purple dinosaur. <laughs> Why would you not, right? Why would you not? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Listen, Jeremy, how do people reach out to you? How do they connect with you? How do they get a hold of you? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, they can reach me at shiphawk.com. Um, also, I have a website for the book. It's at my name, jeremybodenhammer.com. The book is on uh, Amazon. And if you're like me and you want to buy it other places, then if you go to my book website, I have links to Barnes & Noble and even independent bookstores that they can buy the book from. Fantastic. And we will, of course, link to uh, your LinkedIn profile and your Shiphawk website and your own personal website in the show notes. So uh, if you are driving or whatever and can't remember that, don't panic. Just head on over to the show notes and pick them up. Jeremy, listen, it has been an absolute treat to chat with you today. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us, uh, sharing your wisdom and insight into this whole fulfillment thing. I feel like, if I'm honest, we have just started to scratch the service. <laughs> we could go into this in a whole lot more detail. But uh, super generous of you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. No, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Wasn't that fantastic? Uh, Jeremy, wasn't he brilliant uh, with his comments? Like I said, I just find that whole thing fascinating because honestly, we have seen some major gains in our own e-commerce business just by doing some of the things that he has talked about here. Now, we are in season six, which means we are doing a few things new on the e-commerce podcast, one of which is we are going to start doing giveaways in every episode. And today, of course, we are going to be giving away Jeremy's book. Okay, so if you would like a free copy, we have got half a dozen copies of this book to give away. Uh, You would be more than welcome to grab that. All you have to do to go get one of these books is obviously beat everybody else to it. So don't be slow. Uh, But head on over to the uh, website. Go to ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 60. There you'll see all the links, all the show notes to Jeremy's talk. Just scroll down a little bit, putting your name and address. Uh, name and address, name and email address, submit that form and we will be in touch 
to let you know if you have got one of the books. So, you know, basically it's a policy of first come first serve. So if you're first there, chances are strong, you're going to get a copy of the book. We will send that out to you. So just head on over to ecommercepodcast.net forward slash 60 to get a hold of that. That would be great. Now, whilst you're at it uh, and whilst you're online busy trying to get your copy of the book, um, or if you, you know, if you want to pay for it, feel the freedom. Like Jeremy said, there's a whole bunch of places you can get it, but do get it. Strongly recommend that. But whilst you are on the computer, make sure you head on over to wherever you get your podcast from, or if you watch on YouTube or Facebook, make sure you like, comment, subscribe, all of those good things. Give us a review. It just helps us keep the show going and reach more people. Uh, and so I really appreciate that because I'm hoping like me, you get a lot of value out of this show. I have my notes again. Uh, I'm going to have my conversation with the team tomorrow uh, as we get into all things distribution uh, in our conversation. So do uh, do that. Do do that, you know, and um, get your own notes, transcripts. They're all online. Just go get them uh, and give us a review, like I say, at the same time. Now, I am looking at the time. I think from my point of view, this show is a wrap, as they say. Make sure you do join us next week as we have the next episode in season six. We have got some amazing guests coming up this season. Let me tell you, I am so excited about these conversations. I think I learn more than most people on them, to be fair. I don't know if they're more for you or more for me. I, don't, I genuinely don't know. I enjoy them and I hope you do too. So uh, make sure you come back next week as we carry on conversations all to do with e-commerce and how to grow and develop our own online businesses. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. That's all from me. Bye for now. You've been listening to the e-commerce podcast with Matt Edmondson. Join us next time for more interviews, tips and tools for building your business online.